Welcome back to Nurturing Financial Freedom. I am John Jagay, joined again by Alex Cabot and Ed Lambert from Birch Run Financial. Welcome back, gentlemen. Thanks, Jag. It's uh, always a pleasure to be, uh, be here with you. Yep. Great talking to you, Jag. So I love today's topic because we sometimes get caught up in talking about the tumultuous nature of everything in 2020 so far, but we're going to back up a little bit here, zoom out, and talk about misleading investment truths, those cliches that everybody talks about and those tried and true rules of investing that sometimes there's more to them than meets the eye. So Alex, we'll start with you. Talk about this whole adage of buy low, sell high, which we come back to a lot, but there might be a little bit more complicated than we thought. Yeah, full disclosure, Jag, we, we do actually say that quite frequently. I know we've <laughs> talked about that on the podcast, and, and it's been a mantra that we have, to some degree, espoused over the years. But it's one of the most common truths of successful investing, and you can find it anywhere, and embroidered on pillows and, and <laughs> quoted by lots of different uh, successful investors over time. I wonder if there's an advisor out there somewhere who has that to heart so much that it is on his pillow when he goes to sleep at night, or her, I don't know. I can neither confirm nor deny that. <laughs> Fair enough. But maybe tattoos would be a good idea. Now you're thinking. Never forget it. Like any investment saying or concept in the world of investing, something like this, like the buy low, sell high, it has to be taken with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. What it doesn't mean is you shouldn't try to time the peaks and valleys of the market. It's not a question of looking at the market and saying, it's low, now's the time to buy, versus it's high, now's the time to sell. We maintain and we continue to believe that we never really know when the market is high or low relative to tomorrow. Right. And a good example, if you remember back uh, when the tech bubble was building back in the uh, the mid to late 90s, mm -hmm. Alan Greenspan, the then chairman of the Federal Reserve, warned against irrational exuberance in the investing world. Sounds like a phrase he'd use. And he was right. Uh, the market was irrationally exuberant, but he warned of this several years before the market actually reached its top. Okay. So at the time, the market was, quote unquote, high, but it was still going a lot higher. So if you had tried to time it and sell out everything then, you would have missed a pretty substantial rally over the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. uh, and depending on when you got back in, you might have caught the bubble bursting. And on the flip side, you can look at trying to buy when the market's low. I mean, the market was low in September of 2008, but it got a lot lower sure. uh, you know, to March of 2009. And then, of course, it rebounded from there. But the danger is trying to find you know, the zeniths and naders in those chart patterns. We think it's impossible to predict it repeatedly. And one thing we, we always talk about in addition to the concept of buying low and selling high is that if you're diversified properly and, and an appropriate asset allocation, your money is designed to weather any environment the market throws at it. That's why you guys create a plan with your clients from day one. Exactly. And when, when you're balanced the right way, you can go through good periods, you can go through bad periods, and it shouldn't impact the long-term nature of what you're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. The main point that we try to get across with buy low and sell high is not to try to time the market. The main point is to avoid selling low, which should just be don't sell low. Okay. I think that's the main point of it. And of course, that's what most people do when they react to drops in the market. They panic and they bail out, uh, and then they buy back in when it's higher. So it creates this tendency to buy high and sell, or sell low and then buy high again. The main point, of course, just don't sell when things are down. The message isn't to day trade your way to riches. The one takeaway is to stay invested. 
if you're invested the right way to start when the market's doing well and it takes a turn, you're probably still invested the right way. Rebalance when it's appropriate. Stick with that long-term plan. And the longer you stay invested, the greater the likelihood of making a profit when you do sell a long-term investment. And that's the point, is that selling high is about keeping the money invested for a longer period of time. We've talked about this before. While past performance does not necessarily indicate future results, generally speaking, the further you zoom out on that graph of the market over time, you see that trend up. So even if you can ride out some lows, if you stay invested long-term, your odds are better than getting in and getting out. And God, timing the market, we've talked about that before too, Alex, where You've got to get lightning to strike twice. You've got to be absolutely right twice of when you get in and when you get out. And the odds of that happening, unless you've got you know an amazing Kreskin crystal ball, so to speak, <laughs> that's probably not going to happen. The danger, too, in that, Jag, is if you get it right twice and you're really lucky with the timing, because we think it is largely luck for somebody who can do that, mm-hmm. it creates a huge moral hazard. Oh, right. Where now all of a sudden you think, oh, wow, I'm smarter than the market. I know how to time it. And chances are you're not going to get it right again. Lightning may strike twice, but it's not going to strike four times or six times. And it certainly isn't going to strike multiple times in, in the same year to the point where you can actually continually profit from those decisions. Be the equivalent of like buying a Powerball ticket, picking the numbers, nailing the jackpot and thinking to yourself, oh, see, I got the system now. I got it. I can just win Powerball anytime I throw money down on a bet. I guess if you win Powerball, chances are you probably won't have to play Powerball anymore. But I guess it depends on your spending habits. So good point. (laughs) I'll use a Vegas analogy next time. Fair enough. That works. (laughs) So I'm going to turn to you now, Ed. Another investment mantra that we hear all the time is that cash is king. And this is something that was even true when I was in radio. Whenever we'd be sitting around trying to come up with a contest, what are we going to give away for the next promotion to our listeners? We'd always come back to the same cliche, which is that cash is king. We could do gift cards and concert tickets and everything else. But what do people want? They want cold, hard cash. Mm -hmm. So there's this idea that there's cash and then there's everything else after that. So how does that apply in the investment world and where is the flaw in the logic there? Sure. And the expression cash is king in the investment world is usually brought up whenever the stock market declines. You see it posted all over the financial media. You see (laughs) asset managers on TV saying cash is king, cash is king, cash is king. And it's a cliche that is useful, but just like buy low and sell high, only to an extent. Mm -hmm. And the spirit of the expression can very easily be misconstrued. Let's lay out why having cash on hand is important. First, we know that people who are working should have six to 12 months of cash on hand that's readily accessible. It covers household emergencies Mm -hmm. and breaks in employment income. And hopefully 2020 has taught many people the importance of having a cash reserve. You know, it's called a rainy day fund for a reason. Yeah. And 2020 has proven that things can go sideways at any point and you need to prepare for that. I wonder if they'll start after 2020 calling it a Rona day fund. Maybe they will. Maybe they will. I'm sorry. That's the old radio (laughs) DJ me. Continue. (laughs) And in addition to individuals, employers should have adequate cash on hand to continue operations in the event of a sharp decline in revenue. I mean, we certainly do. You know, many businesses fail because of over leverage and lack of cash at the wrong time. A lot of us found it shocking that a number of relatively large companies said that they were essentially out of cash 
within a week or two of the shutdowns in March. Yikes. Just in time cash flow management, it can work. And I guess a lot of consultants like it. They think it's efficient, but it can be quite dangerous too. You know, smart companies prepare for adversity just like smart individuals do, right? Yeah, because there's going to be ups and downs in your business. And I, I mean, I can understand that if you are just starting out and you're a brand new business yes. and you're scraping by and trying to just start making money. But once you're a little bit established, you've got to put some money away for when something awful happens. Sure. And I don't think you can expect a company to have a year's worth of money set aside necessarily, but to be out of money a week or two after a shutdown, if you're an established company, it's just, just kind of surprising. Mm -hmm. Now, retirees who are drawing from their portfolios already on a monthly basis, they should also have cash set aside. You know, in addition to fixed income in their portfolio, cash helps to buffer, you know, market volatility. So there's less overall fluctuation when, when the market does get volatile. But most importantly, that cash provides a stable asset for retirees to draw from for a period of time to allow the stock market to recover from a downturn. And this is something we talked about before. Mm -hmm. A down stock market, there's two main issues that a lot of people run into. One is the obvious panic and sell out, right? The second is somebody who doesn't have enough cash set aside and they're forced to sell stocks during a down market just because they're retired and, and they need the money, right? So that cash becomes sort of like a buffer that if you need something to live off of, you can use yes. that cash and not have to dip into that stock when it's down and lock in that loss. Absolutely. And it's it's something we talk with clients about a lot. I mean, when you're retired and you're drawing from a portfolio, you should have a number of years worth of distributions set aside in very stable fixed income investments in cash. Mm -hmm. Because we know that market downturns are going to happen. And like Alex said before, we never know if prices are going to be higher or lower in the short term. So mm -hmm. having that cash set aside allows people to ride out that volatility without ever being forced to sell at the wrong time. But kind of getting back to where the expression cash is king gets taken a little bit too far. And there's two main areas in which this happened. One is if you were to use the cliche to sell your stocks in a downturn and play the market timing game, mm -hmm. just like Alex covered a few minutes ago, it just doesn't work. Right. The second way that this you know expression is often misconstrued is when investors use it to justify keeping too much cash on hand for too long. Okay. You know, inflation eats away at purchasing power and quite dramatically over time. Mm -hmm. So cash is, for all intents and purposes, a depreciating asset. So over the last 20 years, the inflation rate in the U.S. was 2.2%. Uh, okay. So if you had a million dollars in the year 2000 and you either had it in, let's say, a checking account that earned zero or in your house or whatever it may be. Under the mattress. Yeah, in an asset that produces no return whatsoever. That million dollars, you'd still have it today, but it'd only buy you $650,000 worth of goods and services in $2,000, right? That's less than two-thirds. Wow, okay. Absolutely, absolutely. So no fluctuation, but again, it's a depreciating asset. But also, in addition to the erosion of purchasing power, there's an opportunity cost mm -hmm. to having too much in cash or cash equivalents over time. Let's move from a zero yielding 
sort of a checking account or, or keeping cash under your mattress to a money market fund, let's say, right? Okay. So over the last 15 years, money market funds in the U.S. have averaged 1.3% a year. No fluctuation at all, no downturns, no down years, right? A portfolio mix of 60% stocks and 40% bonds average 6.6% per year. So pretty significant difference. But the 60-40 mix had four down years out of the 15, Mm -hmm. which is roughly 25%. And your million dollars in a money market fund 15 years ago would have grown to $1.2 million today. Mm -hmm. But the 60-40 mix would have grown to $2.6 million. So a $1.4 million difference, Jag, that's the opportunity cost. Here's the point. Cash is king is a useful cliche and expression, and people need to prepare for shocks. They just simply happen. But don't take it too far, because if you do, it'll likely cost you a lot of money over the long term in terms of lost opportunity. So in this case, there can be too much of a good thing, Ed, because you're talking about having that cash on hand for a downturn when you need it, but if you play it too safe... Like you said, that opportunity cost, yeah. looking at that million turning into 2.6 as opposed to 1.2, I mean, that's a difference of more than the original investment. That is huge. Absolutely. And we talk all the time about the power of compound interest, mm-hmm. but you have to put a significant portion of your assets into investments that can actually grow and compound over time. And if you're too fearful of volatility, it tends to cost you a lot of money over time. The next month's podcast will be about why compound interest is a myth. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep contradicting yeah. yourselves, guys. There's no problem at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a joke, by the way. Compound interest is a very powerful force, and it is not a myth. It is a verifiable mathematical fact. It is something that I have seen in my bottom line since I have started doing this podcast with Alex and Ed just over a year ago. So certainly good advice there and a lot to uh, be gained there. Alex, I'll come back to you here. I'm not familiar with this expression, so I want you to walk me through it. Sell in May and go away. What's that all about? This one, Jag, has been around for a long time. I heard it uh, first when I started in the industry 17, 18 years, whenever the heck that was. I started in the business 2004. Mm-hmm. It was more of the old school guys at my office, you know, the guys who were at the time 60, 65 years old. They were the ones who said, oh, everybody knows that, you know, you don't want to have investments or stocks during the summer. You trim down your risk positions and then you get back in at the end of October. Keep doing that and you'll be fine. Okay, that just sounds, nowadays, that just sounds so foreign to me. Explain a little more. It is a strange thing to hear, and and I was sort of struck by it when I heard it. So out of curiosity, because I'm a very analytical person, I, I went back and looked at all the numbers. And the basic idea behind this is that generally the stock market performs worse during the summer months. So you should move all your money to cash or fixed income or something in May and then redeploy it at the end of October. And the question I I wanted to know is, why does this myth persist? And Mm -hmm. it is true that from 1950 to 2013, most of the major U.S. averages did post lower average returns from May to October compared to November uh, to April. And when you look at the numbers from 1950 to 2013, it is true that things perform worse. But when you average it all out together, they both still produce positive returns. 
Okay. So if you're selling in May and going away, coming back at the end of October, you are going to sacrifice, on average, a positive return. That goes back to the point that Ed made a minute ago about just trying to play it safe and opportunity cost. Exactly. If you know verifiably that the return through that period you were supposed to be sold out of was positive in aggregate, you know that you cost yourself money to begin with. So immediately it feels like this myth is debunked. Mm -hmm. And of course it is. But the other interesting thing is since 2013, this has actually proved almost completely opposite. Uh, the market has done extremely well on average during the summer months compared to uh, November through uh, through the end of April. Okay. There are some reasons, though, that this does still persist to this day. Typically, the months of the summer are a little bit more volatile. We tend to see slightly higher price fluctuation on average. And, and one of the hypotheses as to why is that generally during the summer there are fewer market participants, mm. institutional traders, funds that are managing money. On any given day during the summer, you've got probably 8 to 12% of market participants are on vacation. Right. So there's actually a, a little bit less liquidity, which means that the moves tend to be a little bit sharper. The general population is just out of routine in the summer. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good way to put it. And when you have lower liquidity and fewer market participants, you tend to have higher volatility. And of course, mm -hmm. when markets drop, they tend to drop farther. So you start to feel that a little bit more acutely. And sometimes there are some years where it's very true where that happens. If you had sold in May in 2018 and then bought back at the end of October, you would have missed a pretty bad segment of the market from May to, to the end of October. Right. But of course, November, December, and then January and early March of the following year were pretty rotten too. Uh, and then 2009, the exact opposite happened. From May to the end of October was a fantastic period of growth for the equity markets. And had you been out of it for that period, you would not have nearly recouped what you would have had you just stayed in. Mm -hmm. And the problem is the times that this truism is not true, which tends to actually happen quite often, it'll more than wipe out any possible tradable advantage that you could get from it. And the two things that I'm always reminded of is that, generally speaking, the capital markets are very, very efficient. There are thousands, hundreds of thousands of people buying and selling millions, sometimes billions of shares of stock every single day. Mm -hmm. And most people believe that a significant portion of, if not all, available information is sort of priced in already. Now, that information might be wrong. It might you know, be based on faulty assumptions, but information we have is sort of baked into the price. If any of these investment truths that we talk about, and there, there are a couple others like the sell in May and go away, if they were really true, the market would immediately and automatically price in any discrepancy that's there, and it would completely render any potential advantage moot. The average investor wouldn't be able to take advantage of it because the market would know it's going to happen and it would immediately reprice in advance of it supposedly happening. So that's one of the reasons that we obviously don't follow this trend. The other big problem with this philosophy is if you're buying and selling your entire equity portfolio on a regular basis, depending on the cost of those transactions, that may eat into any illusory profit you could make if this worked. And if you're doing this in an after-tax investment account as opposed to a retirement account, 
you're probably triggering massive tax liabilities for absolutely no reason. Oh, yeah. It comes back again to this idea where you don't want to try to time the market. The old expression that we like, and this is one that we will not debunk, is that it's time in the market, not timing the market. I like that. That's what delivers the best results long term. And if you're invested appropriately at the start of the year, at the end of May, chances are you'll still be invested appropriately. And then at the beginning of October or the end of October, you're still invested appropriately. Rebalance when necessary. Review your financial plan. Make sure it still lines up with how you're invested and let the market do its job. Starts with making that plan. And the best way to do that is to come talk to Alex and Ed. What are the best ways to find you guys? You can always find information about us on our website, www.birchrunfinancial.com. And uh, you can always call our office as well. It's 484-395-2190. We are always happy to talk, and we love answering questions for people. Hard to believe we're already through 16 episodes already. Pleasure talking to you guys as always. Great info as always. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll talk soon. Thanks for everything, Jag. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jag. Any opinions are those of Ed Lambert and Alex Cabot and are not necessarily those of RGFS or Raymond James. The information contained in this report does not report to be a complete description of the securities, markets, or developments referred to in this material. There is no assurance any of the trends mentioned will continue or forecasts will occur. The information has been obtained from sources considered to be reliable, but Raymond James does not guarantee that the foregoing material is accurate or complete. Any information is not a complete summary or statement of all available data necessary for making an investment decision and does not constitute a recommendation. Investing involves risk and you may incur a profit or loss regardless of strategy selected. Every investor situation is unique, and you should consider your investment goals, risk tolerance, and time horizon before making any investment. Diversification and asset allocation do not ensure a profit or protect against the loss. The examples throughout this material are for illustrative purposes only. Actual investor results will vary. Future performance cannot be guaranteed, and investment yields will fluctuate with market conditions. Raymond James does not provide tax or legal services. Please discuss these matters with the appropriate professional. Holding stocks for the long term does not ensure a profitable outcome. Investing in stocks always involves risk, including the possibility of losing one's entire investment. Stock dividends are not guaranteed and must be authorized by the company's board of directors. The S&P 500 is an unmanaged index of 500 widely held stocks that is generally considered to be representative of the U.S. stock market. Securities offered through Raymond James Financial Services, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors, Inc. Birchland Financial is not a registered broker-dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services. Birchland Financial is located at 595 East Sweetsford Road, Suite 360, Wayne, Pennsylvania, 19087, and can be reached at 484-395-2190.